The Revision Speaker Series is a Guildhouse initiative bringing together creative minds from around the globe to discuss contemporary arts practice. Revision has been curated as a COVID response, enhancing connectivity, sustainability and well-being across the arts community. This podcast is an audio recording from a live Zoom session recorded on Ghana Country. for joining us today. I'm Debbie Pryor, the Artistic Program Manager at Guildhouse, and I welcome you all to the summer edition of the Revision Speaker Series. Today I'll be talking to Erin Coates and Curator Lee Robb, and before we begin, I'll quickly go through some housekeeping. Today we're discussing endurance and female camaraderie in creative practice with Erin Coates and Lee Robb. Erin Coates is a Perth-based visual artist and creative producer working across drawing, sculpture and film, with a practice informed by her deep interest in the natural world, biology and science fiction. Her work at times engages with a transgressive, orderly aesthetic to probe our understandings of fear, horror, strength and survival, and to disrupt conventional gendered roles and assumptions. Lee Robb is the curator of Contemporary Art at Art Gallery of South Australia, with 20 years of experience in the arts. Rob's previous roles include curator at Picker in Perth, associate director at Thomas Dane Gallery in London, and head of internship program at the Peggy Guggenheim Collection in Venice. The most recent curatorial project was the incredible Monster Theatres for the 2020 Adelaide Biennial Australian Art. Let's welcome Erin and Lee as they discuss strength and um, endurance and in female camaraderie in creative practice. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you so much for having us. And Hello to Erin in Perth. Uh, so we really appreciate you um, inviting us uh, into this um, very, you know, meaty and incredibly relevant topic, not just in this year, but um, in contemporary art and art history. And so when uh, Debbie and MFA reached out for this summer session and said, you know, which, which artist um, would you like to be in conversation with around ideas of female strength, resilience, and, and endurance? Um, the first person that came to mind was the remarkable Erin Coates. Um, I was very lucky to work with Erin over many years when, uh, when I moved to Perth, and she was one of the, one of the first artists that I met. And I remember clearly seeing a work that she made called um, called Merge, where she had sacrificed her little white Ford laser um, for a new video work and um, exploded the the windows. I'd also been invited to some of these. We're shooting through some uh, some um, images there of. Uh, you know, almost sort of guerrilla film festivals where Erin would curate other artists into into films and um, in and held in car parks. And um, in addition to that, you know, this work that we're looking at here on the screen, which is called Thirst, was a, a zombie film that um, that Erin made. So ideas um, around, I guess, challenging um, the sort of looking at body horror, but also challenging um, female roles and also um, female protagonists in in film um, is something that um, has sort of endured in her practice. But I think thinking about um, endurance as a almost as an artistic strategy is something that Erin, I've been fascinated to to witness in your projects um, over over the years. And um, and I guess um, a work in particular that um, that I guess is an is an is an interesting place to start 
um, is the last climber alive must keep herself fit and ready. And it's quite a, a pertinent work because it tracks a, a, lone female, a lone female athlete or climber in an empty apocalyptic city. Um, scaling the heights and and uh, of, of buildings and you know keeping herself agile and limber, and so Erin, I just wanted to open up and um, thank you for the conversation ahead and to to just ask about that relationship between you know female physicality, um, strength and endurance in your creative practice. Sure, thanks so much for that um, amazing introduction. I'll just quickly bring up an image of the last climber video that you were referring to there. So. Um, yeah, it's amazing looking back on these images and sort of remembering the first time that Lee and I encountered each other in Perth, uh, and it was um, back in sort of around 2009 or 10, I think. Yeah, around 2010. And at the time, uh, I was making um, projects with other friends in um, in like car parks and sort of one night venues, and just sort of finding ways to have these one night events and. Um, at the time, it was just it was a, it was about finding our own way of making and presenting art, and we were really interested in doing it sort of outside of gallery spaces because uh, we were interested in in embracing the kind of grunginess of those spaces and looking at things like car culture, looking at cult cinema and drive-in cinemas, and so it worked so well as a as a space, and it kind of intersected with my interest at the time around. Um, you know, screen culture and how women are represented in that and like finding, like breaking it apart and finding these other ways to kind of insert the body into video spaces, but also give these different experiences of how we experience the screen. So, so making, making kind of a full screening experience in a kiosk in a car yard or screening on side of buildings. And so it was, yeah, it was pretty pretty rad and grungy and involved, you know, blowing windows out of cars and scouting through scrapyards to find material. So a lot of it was also based at the time on not like not having very big budgets, um, but also just this desire for myself and other artists that I was working with to have control over how we were representing our own practices and, and having control over the context in which they were experienced. So it was not waiting to be shown, it was finding and creating those contexts ourselves for how we wanted to be shown. And there was, there was often kind of a mammoth effort, you know, when you're getting a car and you're blowing the windows out of it and you want to shoot it with a ballistics camera in slow motion, like you need you need certain things. So like I needed an aircraft hangar to shoot the car in. I needed like a beautiful polished concrete floor. So it was just around kind of tapping into my networks and who do I know that kind of might have access to these things. Um, so that was for me the beginnings of building up those informal networks with my friends and my peers and, and, not, and not being a one-way exchange, um, asking them sort of if they wanted to participate and if so, what were the terms of that participation? And so I found really quickly that a lot of my friends, even if they weren't in the arts, really wanted to get on board because for them, it gave them this access to the art world and these interesting experiences actually being involved in making artworks that they hadn't really, hadn't been asked before. And they had all these other skills, you know, they might be pilots or engineers or mechanics. And so it was like having access to this other audience as well so these collaborators became peers and audience too so and and then, and then it kind of shifted into my interest in climbing and tapping into that friendship group as well which is like perhaps the next thing that we might talk about <laughs> yeah so um with uh with the the work the last climber alive must keep herself fit and ready um the protagonist in that is uh 
um, one of you, you know, we when when we were just thinking about this discussion, we were also going back through some of your incredible projects, Erin, and um, and also the you know the title of this you know the, this talk and discussion is around female camaraderie and how mm -hmm. certain certain sort of uh, fearless duos at different times have allowed um, have allowed you to your work literally to another level when mm -hmm. you've been scaling um, artworks or, um, or mm -hmm. literally working out client uh, routes to inform you know seven meter high sculptures or you know building a, a climbing a climbing gym and um, and Siobhan Cooley is the um, is the central figure that um, that you sort of shot against a green screen but then you were traveling to Beijing and you actually the back the the footage is this incredible uh, model of the, the city of Beijing, but completely empty, and then you've um, you've situated Siobhan in that. But maybe it'd be great to unpack some of the, the thinking around that work, but also, I guess, the beginnings of um, a longer-term collaborative uh, relationship with, say, Siobhan Cooley, um, mm -hmm. and um, and then we'll we'll move into to the pact, which which um, I guess visually captures a lot of those those ideas and enduring sort of friendships. Sure, yeah. So um, the last climb Rely must keep herself fit and ready was uh, a work that was kind of made like really over two periods. So I lived in Beijing for six months, and at the time, uh, you know, it was an amazing experience, and I I got to do a lot of things there that you you need to live there to sort of understand the city and start to find these other trails through it. So while I was there, I discovered that there's one of the largest architectural models in the world is in Beijing in the Urban Planning Hall. And it's not really very well visited, which surprised me because it's the most astonishing model. It's it's the, one of the biggest in the world. Uh, and so I went there over a period of time and filmed it. And I didn't ask permission, which is you know not my style. I kind of went in and surreptitiously filmed this model. And a lot of the time I'd be the only one that was in there. And the whole model had this incredible lighting system inside it with sort of louvers in the ceiling of the building and little lights would come on and off. And it was sort of, it was showing this perfection of a city as it's meant to be sort of presented without all of the messiness of humans actually living in it. So there's something sort of deeply utopic about architectural models, but also dystopic because when you really start looking closely at architectural models you can see sort of human hairs and, and buildings are sort of falling over slightly and there's all of these sort of ratty things it, it, it's very hard to maintain a model of that size so it, there's also something deeply dystopic about this model but it was just such a beautiful thing so I knew that I wanted to insert something into it I, I filmed the footage and it wasn't until I came back to Australia um, that I knew what needed to happen so at the time um, I'd been doing a lot of rock climbing, it's something I got into previously when I'd been living in Canada, uh, and my climbing buddy, Siobhan Cooley, who you can see here, um, the two of us have done a lot of climbing together and have this real trust with one another. And so I asked her, I was like, it'd be so great actually to, to have you inhabiting this empty city. And uh, you know, a, a lot of the time when you have this, you know, last man alive scenarios, like the quiet earth or I am legend, or you know, like there's numerous other examples, it's often a male protagonist that is left. Um, and occasionally there'll be an Eve that's there for him, but you know it's really often a male hero. So I wanted to recast this sort of lone survivor as a woman and make her a climber. And she's sort of accruing fitness and she's testing her strength against the city. So I got Siobhan to climb against a green screen that we set up 
in a climbing gym, like with no ropes. So she was just like free climbing to the roof of the climbing gym. Once again, we didn't ask. We just sort of did it. We went in after hours because we knew the owners and, you know, like pasted this green screen on the side of the climbing wall and, and shot it um, and then got her doing all of this other training that we were doing climbing and then inserted this footage in there. So this was kind of the, the one of the first films that I made that was engaging with climbing and female strength and was about this sort of lone hero, this woman that isn't really being, um, she's not there for a, for a male protagonist, she's there on her own terms and you don't, you don't know exactly what that narrative is. You sense that there's a threat that she needs to prepare herself for. So yeah, it was a really kind of great introduction into sort of working with climbers. I, I kind of realised, wow, this is sort of untapped. And at the time, I, you know, I was doing a lot of climbing training and, you know, like climbing in competitions and going on climbing trips overseas. And so um, most of my friends were climbers and I just realised there was actually so many interesting things about what climbers do, how we read space, how we map it and how we share those maps with each other, that sharing that kind of information um, and that camaraderie that comes actually because you are literally relying on each other for, for life or death. You have to have this sense of trust and this sort of implicit communication a lot of the time and really knowing each other. Um, and you know things about each other. You've, you've, you know, you've seen each other kind of being really scared or triumphant. You've seen each other's blood kind of <laughs> scraped on a rock surface. So there's sort of this, this bond often that climbers have that I thought was a really interesting space to explore. And often with my friends, we would, when we were in the city, we would talk about architecture and public art and start assessing it in terms of how climbable we thought it was. So that's really where this next series came from. Yeah, so this next series, this this was done um, before before a big show called Kinosphere. It was, this was kind of an earlier body of work and it was sort of a bit fast and grungy to start with. And again, it was about um, going out with my friends who were climbers early morning and filming these sort of adventures, climbing public art around our city. And it became about this wanting to share these videos with other climbers. So that's sort of how it started in a way. It was this sort of us assessing public art and appreciating it in a different way and finding this other formal language to discuss it. And we'd often talk about it in, in this lexicon of climbing, of the, you know, of the edges and the holds and the moves that you had to do to successfully climb these public artworks. And from that, it kind of grew into this bigger project um, that Lee sort of invited me to participate in. So I might get her to speak a little bit about that, but alongside kind of these actions, these um, kind of sketch videos of us climbing these artworks, I started doing a whole series of drawings where I was applying the, like the beta, the, the climbing route information that you use when you're sharing climbing routes with each other, applying that to public artworks and then sharing these images with other people and also as artworks. So that was sort of this, you know, this meta language in climbing being applied onto artworks and then sharing it in, you know, in a gallery space. And it was amazing because climbers that would come in would be able to read it in a, in a really different way to other people. So it was this remapping of urban space. And a part of it is around, you know, decoding the space and looking at, you know, how public space is demarcated, what is public and private and how we're meant to move through it and actually sort of finding an expanded way of moving through urban space. So it was also, um, it, it had other aims to it as well. Yeah, and thanks, Erin. I'm just scrolling through some of our, you know, some of the, the images from the major solo mm -hmm. show that, that I guess goes back to our long history of working together. So 
that was in 2014. And, um, and there, was a, there was an incredible commission, um, a very unusual model, which, um, which uh, only, only happened on you know, uh, sort of one occasion, but it was called the Catherine Hannay Commission. And it was um, an opportunity for an institution to work with, to put in a proposal together with an artist to do a major installation and a publication and, um, and for the artist to, to get significant uh, fees um, as well as support for the production. And then the gallery would also support and run the, 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 the costs of, of working on a long-term major significant ambitious project. So to be able to, you know, sort of pursue the big ideas. And so it was something that Erin um, and I put in together with, um, with Pika and with obviously the support of Amy Barrett-Leonard, the amazing director at the time and still director at Pika. And, and it was sort of incredible because I think um, Brooke Andrew was one of the other recipients uh, nationally. And, and so it was really phenomenal to, to be able to realize and work for yeah, a good, a, you know, a good couple of years on this project. Um, and, uh, and, and so to, you know, physically and in terms of the production, I got to see firsthand I was like, I asked her, you know, I was like, what's the work that you've always wanted to make? And and she had this extraordinary uh, vision of creating a seven meter high tower um, within the, the center of the gallery that housed a micro cinema. You can see people sort of going in and out and it sort of tracks a route, which um, actually mimics the route that you could do if you were to climb the clock tower of the Pika um, building on the front, which, I'm sure I'm sure you really wanted to try and do but um but uh yeah I think uh, I don't know if that ended up happening in the end but who knows you probably did a did one of those uh, gorilla nighttime climbs on the on the gallery and that gives you a sense of of the scale of it but it was you know thinking about endurance and you know female camaraderie um Erin and I were sort of reflecting on on this you know because I was what, what I found really interesting at different points watching Aaron's practice is the relationship between, I guess, thinking about the long game as an artist and also the sort of physical and mental, I guess, sort of uh, resilience um, in order to set about making these projects and to keep making bigger and larger projects which have involved you learning to you know make films and be super technically adept on one hand but also physically making the resin casts and you know wanting to make a fully graded climbing gym that the public could use so for the duration of this amazing exhibition all the climbers would come in and and work out all the routes and you also had to scale up that side wall and you could actually look in and then you would be rewarded by seeing a, another video of a of a climb um and you used like three-dimensional you know 3d footage and cameras and and drones and you know you, you know you were studying parkour and climbing and you know Erin would invite me out on these like you know, 5 a.m. drone shoots or to come and watch them scale, you know, public public artworks. And so it was, you know, it was very exciting. And so when you're thinking about, I don't think, uh, you know, pursuing these really complex um, works or ideas are, um, are about the absence of fear. I think it's about the harnessing of fear or in a way, the mastery of fear, um, which is something that, you know, I've 
you know, I've really, I'm always just so incredibly impressed with with Erin about. And we also talked a lot um, at that point and around what are the touchstones, whether that's in film or literature, that have allowed you to, to think about what it means to make art for the long term and to make these really complex works. And Erin, maybe you want to talk about the impact of Haruki Murakami's what I talk about when I talk about running and his relationship mm. to the sort of discipline of running and training for marathons and um, the, the creative um, sort of uh, corollary of, um, of, of being a writer and how those two things are completely entwined and allowed him to, to, to go somewhere else. And then we'll, we'll segue back to, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Board. Yeah, we really did everything with this project, didn't we, Lee? <laughs> So, and it was, I couldn't have done it without, and I just want to state this before I, before I go back to Haruki, I couldn't have done this without Lee and without Pika and without that kind of support structure around me. I mean, this was big, ambitious work. It was a massive commitment and it was a lot of moving parts to create that tower, you know, to do these, we we were climbing public artworks at 5am kind of twice a week for months. And it was sort of this regime that myself and my friends had and, and and we'd sort of stake out places we'd figure out who'd be the best person to boulder them this is all done without votes um and, you know, and this was for the film that was shown inside the micro cinema um you know we had we had um we were filming it with drones and we like everything was kind of happening and to to put that much into a project and any any project I feel that I'm working on that I you know I usually I'm all in with my projects and I'm balancing this also with work and family so to be able to sustain the energy that you need to do these kinds of projects but to keep doing them over the course of your creative life I started thinking about what is it that you need how do you sustain yourself you know how do you have that endurance and it was really great timing but I, I was reading a book by Haruki Murakami that Lee mentioned and previously I just read his fiction but this was the first non-fiction of his and in it he speaks about marathon running as a metronome as a way as this kind of beat this thing that runs alongside his writing that kind of gives him energy and keeps him grounded and provides all these other things and it's not like this for every creative but for me I realized that climbing was you know was was really important to sustaining my creative practice that there was this there's a physicality to how I make work and there's a an endurance that I need, but there's also that psychological endurance and climbing kind of gave me that space and that energy and that calmness that I needed. And, you know, in climbing, you're dealing with fear and risk all the time. Like that's, that's what you're assessing. You're not taking stupid risks. You're understanding the limits of your body and your skills. You're understanding your climbing partner and you're like making those assessments constantly so that you don't hurt yourself. And in a way, in art, we're doing the same. We're making those assessments around what are, what's our capacity? Is this project, is it the right time for me to do this now? Do I have the right network around me? Do I have the right skills? Um, and then being able to do that, you know, of course there's fear and there's risk in there because there has to be something at stake, but you're understanding that you can, you can how far you can push yourself. So there was this, for me, this, this understanding of that relationship between climbing and what it was giving me and how that related to my creative practice and how I feel it kind of, Climbing and now free driving as well, like how these things feed my creative practice and allow me to, to keep wanting to make really ambitious work that I have to throw myself into in a, in a way that's, you know, just complete. How can I keep doing that? I can keep doing it. And, and for me, like that's my answer. And I know it's different for different artists. 
yeah, and I looked at a few other artists that seem to have these relationships in their practice, and I find it really interesting when they speak about what their relationship is with endurance and physicality over the long term. And this is not just a fast turnaround thing. It's like year after year, if you want to be an artist, what is it that's sustaining you? What's your, what is your relationship with your art making and those other aspects of your life? Yeah, Aaron. I mean, I think that's a you know beautiful summary of of that as well. And part of what you've talked about is also building that community um, mm. long term. I mean, it's it's also you know wonderful to be reflecting back on this um, you know major major solo show of yours that we did you know six nearly seven years ago, mm. and that you know seven years later we're able to work together make in the context of a biennial, which is also the, you know, the long-term, you know, tracking and following of, a, of an artist's uh, career. But, uh, you know, we were also looking at, you know, key, you know, female partners and partnerships mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, curating and also the production of things. And I'm just looking at this, you know, when we had to build that giant scaffold <laughs> in the middle of Pika, and that's, you know, Nadia Johnson, who now works at Acme in, in Melbourne as a production manager. But, you know, there was Nadia and I and Erin and Siobhan and, you know, a, a huge other, you know, team as well. But, you know, we were remembering being up there at 2 a.m. the night before we <laughs> opened, like, painting, on, painting the outside <laughs> of the work at, like, you know, 7 and yeah, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, interesting sort of buffering that has to happen between the curator and the the artist in terms of a lot of people were very nervous about these types of projects and works um, because they're so ambitious and they're you know they're complex they require a lot of production they require a lot of people and you've got to keep a lot of people safe as well along the way. Part of that I think is also keeping the artist safe to be able to take those those risks and to to support in in that in that project but you know there were certainly things where you're just like you know you, you'd had to work with you know engineers and architects to mm -hmm. to make this scaled up incredible um uh structure and you know at each turn there was so much new information that needed to be learned mm -hmm. um and collectively um and bodily for everyone to to to, to pull off this uh this exhibition no. Yeah, you know, and uh, that's a great point around kind of production management and having Nadia involved in this. I mean, she's just indefatigable. Like, she just kept going and she would, each problem, she would find a solution. And sometimes you need somebody that's not the artist or the curator to take on board that stuff because it's so huge. You have to stay focused on the things you need to get done and not get swallowed up by every part of it. So it was this dream team for me. It was like the best combination of making was having you know, having you and Nadia on the team. And I felt like we could do anything together. So, yeah, it was it, it was really intense, every stage of this, making the work and installing the work. And it felt like it was only possible because of the combination that we had. Like, that was how, you know, like, we, we had to wear, like, full-body safety harnesses just to install the work. It was, you know, it was intense. And respirators to use the glue to join on the blocks together. And so it's, it's all these different kinds of risks that you have to mitigate along the way. But yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think also we were driven by the excitement of it. It was this feeling of like, you know, we'd, there'd never been a work this big inhabiting the centre of that space. And it's like, it's about time that like a kind of a, a women's team comes and occupies this space. It's like, if God knows there's enough like male modernist pop sculptures in our city that that kind of occupy space, it's like it was this other rewriting. And it, it was actually all about the internal space here. It was about that micro cinema and inviting the the audience to come inside and, and kind of view the work and, and see their city in a way that they've never seen before. So 
yeah, there was lots of different kinds of relationships going on to inside and outside and to our bodies and how our bodies move through space and that ownership that we have over our urban spaces. So I, for a lot of the climbers that were involved in the project with me, I mean, they felt an incredible sense of ownership over it, which was amazing. And they were all there at the opening and they came in and were training on the bouldering wall, you know, <laughs> throughout the course of the exhibition. And, you know, we've discussed it since then. And it, like that project has changed our relationship with urban space. Like when we're walking around the city and we see these things that we've climbed, we have this different understanding of those spaces now. Um, and, and we have this sort of bond knowing that like together we scale those artworks. So it was, I mean, there's something very cheeky and irreverent about it, but it was the, the sense behind it was like wanting to have another relationship with urban space and wanting to appreciate these artworks in a different way and, and you know, and also using our own physical skills to do that. So there was a, there was a great bond between us in doing that and, I, and it was very much this team pulling it together. I mean, there was also an amazing sound artist that worked on this and he went out and percussed the sculptures that we'd been climbing to record sounds to make the soundtrack for the film. Um, so all of these little details, there were all of these collaborators um, that fed into this project, which is how I love working, is finding these people that have the skills that I don't and bringing them on board and allowing them to have ownership inside of projects. Like that community that you build around your practice, like for me, that is just as important as the artwork. Like it is the artwork, it's, it's part of it. And it's what also sustains me as an artist and, you know, and will going forward. Yeah, I mean, it's... It, um, maybe we should talk a bit about the pact, other collaborations that I've been working on to do with Under the Ocean. You know, and and one of the, I've, I've, I've probably spoken about this work in a lot of different contexts as well and on, you know, feminist panels and, and other things. And um, and it's this in, incredibly elegant, but, you know, a, a work that, that really, uh, you know, captures um, that, you know that that um, camaraderie, that female strength, but also um, you know brings together a whole lot of cinematic elements, um, and it's called the pact. And uh, and to Erin to talk more about it, but even to make this, it was so much around the specific physicality or kinosphere, the sort of space in which um, your your body occupies, that that you constructed a set that was specific to the conjoined bodies of yourself and Siobhan. Um, in, in the making of, uh, of of this of this work, and it was so much about you know pressure being uh, you know sort of formalized, but another way of of representing that you know in terms of keeping yourself elevated just above the ground um, in this, and that you are entirely dependent on each other, but you're also you know push that that incredible sort of push pull and tension both in in that sort of relationship of support is. You know, just so beautifully played out in this, you know, really sort of muscular, um, yeah, uh, you know, work. Yeah. So for for the, the pact, it, like I really wanted to distill down and make this about, um, you know, my relationship with my climbing partner and that sort of reliance that we have and that understanding that we have of of fear and strength and horror. And there's an abstract horror that comes out in this film. You you get this sense that we have to rely on each other, or there's there really is something terrible will happen. There's this, there's this kind of sense of foreboding that comes from the score that was made for this. And also there's elements of blood in this film that kind of start appearing. And so I constructed a set that was based on our own body dimensions for us being able to do these compression moves where we're pushing against each other, against the sides of the set and able to suspend ourselves in the set. So it was made, you know, specifically for us. And in it, it's, a, it's basically a black cube that we were filming, you know, like from above and from one side. 
and suspending ourselves, like we were about a metre and a half off the ground for, for the most part and had to use massive endurance to kind of hold ourselves pressed against each other and move in this choreography around it. So it was around this, it's the mirroring that's kind of going on, this sort of connection and reliance on one another, but also the fact that it, we have different strengths, like our body shapes are quite different. So there was different ways that we needed to move to be able to support each other in that space. So it was it was essentially about that relationship and that sort of intensity of understanding that sometimes our lives rely on one another. Um, and, and, and and also my interest in in horror and in women that work in horror. So it's drawing from from these sort of tropes from horror cinema, the way that it's been lit um, and having this very pared down um, colouring in it as well, that it's just the black, the red and the white. So for the costuming, you know, I was looking at um, like Kill Bill and Tank Girl and, and Rollerball and Roller Derby costumes and sort of every element that was included because it was so minimal was very considered was about making this sort of quite distilled and intense visual language in there. So, yeah, it was also, you know, in a way it was a bit of a, it was a homage to my to my friend who's been involved in making, she, you know, she's not an artist, but she's been involved in making so many of these artworks with me and it was around just exploring that relationship in a, in a, in quite an intense way. And at the time, you know, like I said, I, I was really looking at a lot of different women horror directors and looking at women behind the camera, not just in front of it. And the fact that a lot of directors of women directors have been written out of cinematic history, especially genre history. So that for me was sort of um, wanting to make us sort of behind the camera and in front of it. So Siobhan helped to choreograph that film with me as well. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was really hard to make. It was like two days of shooting and and um, the, to build the set, like we had, to, I had to line it with this um, black fabric that would, was very, very matte and would absorb the light so that you couldn't see it. And it wasn't exactly the best material for climbing on, like you'd slip off it. So there were just so many moments when we were just sort of, we'd be holding this pose to absolute breaking point and then just like collapse on the ground. So it was funny and it was, there was a lot of humour in it, but we ended up with sort of bruises on us and it was like the muscle fatigue from two days of filming inside this space. But at no point would Siobhan have ever have gone, I've had enough, I'm not doing this. It was like neither of us would have done that because we've been to each other's limits and we know and they were much beyond this. So that was also that interesting thing of like knowing that I could make this work with her and that she was going to say yes the whole way. I think that's probably a, a great time to maybe segue to to some questions. Would that be right, Debbie? Are we at that point? And I'll also um, bring up some some images of dark water because we were just about that many people um, in the audience. And you know, thanks everyone for joining us. Um, uh, hopefully, got a chance to to see as part of Monster Theatre's the Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art this year, and also speaks to an incredible enduring uh, collaboration between Erin Coates and Anna Nazari. Um, so I'll, I'll bring up some of those images whilst um, maybe we take some, some questions from the audience. Sure, I'll just, I'll just, I might just briefly introduce um, Dark Water as well. So another person that I've collaborated with extensively is artist Anna Nazari, and she is a visual artist. Um, and I really sought her out because of her incredible skills in um, in pyrography, in etching, in sculpting, and sort of anything she turns her hand to, she can kind of master quite quickly. So um, I I was still work, making work about climbing, but I was also quite interested in oceanic spaces and in the sort of submersed bodies and in um, maritime histories in the town that I'd grown up in. 
Uh, and so I invited Anna to come and learn about the history of whaling in the town that I grew up in and to look at scrimshaw and to reinvigorate this sort of old art form. Um, and also she's an artist that has real interest in, in kind of horror and the abject body. And, you know, she doesn't shy away from kind of really looking at things. So from this collaboration, we've made three films that have all been partially filmed underwater. And the last one that we made, uh, so this Cetophobia was the first one that we did, um, which was filmed uh, 20 metres underwater on the wreck of a sunken whale chaser in Albany called the Chains 2. Um, and, you know, like, you, like you, think, you think filming stuff around climbing public art is hard. Well, try filming stuff underwater on a, on a whaling ship. <laughs> it's like, it's this whole other level of, of difficult that I felt I'd entered. But, um, but once again, it was around this community that I had. My dad was a professional scuba diver and I'd sort of grown up around that world. So I had access to boats and the whole diving community. So um, the, the final film that we made, Dark Water, was in um, Lee's amazing monster theatres. And this is about a woman who finds an ocean in the walls of her home. And it's very much, it's a, it's a film that is about women's kind of, women's stories and matrilineal trauma and reproduction, but it's also about oceans. Um, and it you know, kind of has this metaphors of watery bodies, um, but it's, the set is filled with endemic species of flora and fauna that are from the waters that Anna and I snorkel in around Perth. So it, it brought in this interest in science and biology. Um, but to shoot this film, we had to build a set, build a tunnel in my backyard and flood it. I had to build a set and sink it in a swimming pool. Like it was just this whole next level of difficult, which by this stage I was like, wow, well, you know, <laughs> surely I can do this if I can climb public art and build a seven meter tower. But this was really, really hard. And it was a, it was really like two years of, of like getting the funds and the team together and making everything and building it. So this is Anna and I on the set. An award-winning film, Erin. It's won like multiple awards now. It has. I'm very proud of it. Yeah, it's it's done really well in the festival circuit. It's been a great shame that I haven't been able to go to any of the festivals this year, and a lot of them have ended up being online. So it's that's sad. But it's it's filming in Perth finally in Revelation Film Festival next week. So it'll be the first time I've seen this film in the cinema, which I'm really, really excited about. Here's some of our crew inside the set that we shot. Oh, that's that's me. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you know, all of the prosthetics and the practical effects in there, Anna and I made everything. Like we made everything kind of from scratch. Um, and there was this sort of kinetic practical effects set that we had divers behind the walls, like operating the robotics of everything. So it was um, it was just a joy to learn all these new skills and to kind of kind of explore working with with my diving friends and and getting into that world. It was sort of going from climbing up to going down and it's this it's this whole other adventure in art making and it yeah, it's been amazing. But it also sort of, you know, um, charts your I guess movement into you know working around being a producer as well as a filmmaker mm. and um and you know both, both of you being filmmakers writing the script making the set you know i mean they, i don't there's nothing there's no project that i can think of that that better captures the idea of um you know sort of superwomen um in you know to, to that end you know um it's you know an extraordinary achievement um and you know again you were learning how to do free diving and taking on a whole other sort of physical um, element to, to be able to, to do this, but also making it in collaboration with Anna. So I think 
probably on that note, I know that we're, um, we've spoken yeah. over time, Debbie, so, you know, call us and uh, let us know what's what's next. I'm sure we didn't get a chance to do a public talk with Erin IRL when um, when we opened the Barneal and, um, and everything was closed pretty quickly and the plans were to bring Erin back and Erin um, also worked on the studio, um, curating the studio there as well um, for the for the Barneal. So it's probably a great chance to, to, to ask some, some, some questions. Yeah, thank you. That was so inspiring and informative and it's such a great window into um, such a huge practice that you have, Erin, but also the um, beautiful relationship that the two of you have as artists and curator. And I'm wondering, Erin, um, being that you already work within endurance and I guess your work is a metaphor for um, mental and emotional survival, I'm wondering what your personal tools have been this year because it has been such a year of upheaval and as you know you've won some awards and you've been out you haven't been able to see your work um in the same way that you would have previously and I'm just wondering how that's kind of had an effect on you personally and, and on your practice and how you mm. yeah look I mean it's been it's been really hard for everyone I feel you know I'm lucky at least I still have a job so I haven't had to deal with that it's been there's been elements of like real conflict and difficulty in my job um but I feel really lucky in Perth that I've still been able to go out and free dive. So it's been about finding those things that sustain me, going climbing and diving and seeing my friends when I can. And yeah, like we all need to just take care sometimes. So a lot of this year has been um, just going back to those things. And I mean, I've had another big studio project this year that's engaging with the river in our city with the Darabal Yarragon. And so I've been working in the studio on that and it's been a really nice thing to focus on. Um, but it's been deeply disappointing as well to not be not be able to you know like so much work went into dark water and I had like Anna and I had such big plans to go to these festivals and engage with other women directors and horror directors and you know people working and all kinds of amazing underwater cinema stuff and we haven't been able to do any of that so that's obviously really disappointing and um, I guess it's like this you you just have to find those things that sustain you and keep pushing through and working in your studio it's like you know, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if I have any one strategy. Like, it's not like we've had any choice in this. So it's just trying to find the things that you can do that keep you going. Thank you so much. We're going to jump to some of the questions that have come through from uh, participants. From Catherine Truman, fantastic and inspiring. Thank you both. Erin, I'm wondering if your sense of risk, risk has changed over time. Yeah, I mean, that's a really hard one. I, like, I guess my, um, you know, like I'm not doing as much high level like climbing training as I used to. So I probably wouldn't go out and climb a public artwork off the bat straight away. I'd have to build up to that. But but my sense of risk hasn't changed in that sense. It's it's still around knowing my abilities and my limits. And uh, I've been doing a lot of freediving training so that I can shoot this film in the river this year. And that's been all about Another thing, it's been about learning how to hold my breath for a really long time and stay really calm and have control over that part of my body. So um, I guess I've just transferred from one thing to another. It's the same strategies that I'm using. Um, yeah, I, as far as risk, um, like I have started to take out insurance on shoots now because I've become aware of other people and the if something goes wrong and I'm not covered for insurance, I don't want people that I'm working with to be, you know, I don't want a situation where we can't cover 
something if it goes wrong. So yeah, I guess I've become a little more practical as I've started to work with professional filmmakers and tap more into that world, realizing that it's not just this little individual guerrilla project that I'm going out and shooting, that there's other people involved and I have to take care of them. So it's responsibility, I guess, is, is where that sense of risk has changed. Thank you. From Jane Ski, we have, you are amazing. Love, love, love your work. Once you build all of these props, do you keep them in storage or do you get rid of them, especially the gym work? I find storage a massive strain on my making. <laughs> Just a cool question. <laughs> yeah, I know. I love these practical questions because that's so true. Like this is like one of the things that really affects artists. I don't have a big studio. I work in my house. I'm just lucky my husband lets me take over every surface of every part of our house and he just would like he doesn't complain ever so I'm really lucky in that sense but um yeah you know I, I have to recycle props and give things away and I just had a big studio sale and cleaned a lot of stuff out and like I try not to put too much into storage I find uh, maybe I'll regret it one day if I want to come back and find those things but I just can't like it stresses me out having piles of boxes everywhere so I tend to kind of move from one project to the next and I find a way to just sell or give away or repurpose things you know like that's what I have to do like with film sets and props like you can't you just can't keep that stuff it's it would take over my life too much a lot of artists are hoarders really because we see the in so many things and the ability to reuse things so it must be hard to um, let some things go I can imagine <laughs> it is really hard and we all know like the investment of time that we've spent making something but your value that you place on it is not the same as other people's value all the time so you, it's like you have you have to think about actually you're going to use this thing again what value does it have beyond the thing that you've just done with it and yeah, like I'm pretty harsh of my assessment of the things around me because I need that space with new projects. And I, I do all of my own, um, you know, model making and resin casting, silicon casting, all that kind of stuff at home and building, you know, props and sets. So I have, I have to have that space for tools and for working in. So you can't, can't keep things around if it's compromising your ability to make new stuff. I have another question from Zoe Freening, who's a Freening, who says, this has been fascinating. How do you deal with the paradox of these activities feeding your practice yet taking time away from your practice and having to fit with artists already multiple shifts? Oh, um, that's a complicated question. I'm like, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a paradox. Like it, to me, it's all connected and they feed into each other. So, you know, my, um, I work also as a, as a producer and a curator, um, I ha like that probably is where I have to do the most balancing. Like I have to have really clear boundaries between when I'm working as a curator or a producer, when I'm working as an artist so that I, my life is still, you know, controllable and, and that I don't end up burning out. So um, yeah, you know, I, I set really clear boundaries. I don't, I don't take my work computer home. I don't answer work calls unless I absolutely have to. Um, and I don't talk about my, I don't, I didn't use my work to promote my practice or talk about it. For the most part, I keep those things really separate because I have to. Um, as, as far as other aspects of my life, um, you know, I, I'm like deliberately not married to an artist because a lot of my friends are artists. I work in the arts and I'm an artist and it just was not going to work for me having a partner that's an artist. So that was like a, he's a climber. It was a really practical, wise decision. Um, yeah, so I guess like we all have to make those decisions about our lives, about like where separations and boundaries are, what's feeding something or what's like detrimental and taking away from it. 
but I think I have a pretty good balance. Um, but it's yeah, it's been like some hard lessons to learn along the way. Um, Leah, I'd like to ask you a question about the relationship between artist and, and curator. There's so much generous trust between, uh, particularly in this instance, the two of you, but I wonder that relationship mustn't be natural for every artist that you work with, and I wonder what are the key things that enable you to really foster a relationship that's a, that you have that longevity? Yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting question, um, and I think it probably connects maybe in a way to, to Zoe's question around that sort of give and take and push and pull. And um, and when Erin and I were talking yesterday, I was like the, the times when you haven't gone or, well, in, in any case, there's so much, there's such a return and a reward in being able to support an artist and watch, um, watch them and help them achieve these incredible projects that often I feel like it it is about being being very present and also having a certain amount of of strength and, and trust in that relationship that whilst they're working on sometimes very abstract very complex things that um, that need time to percolate and make that that you're 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 sort of with them uh, along the way almost like the, the sort of um, the climbing body beneath them, or the sort of coach, or something in, in that way that that um, that often you're also sort of pushing them into a place that sometimes might be um, uncomfortable, but only because you know the work extremely well and you know where else the work can go, and that you can see all these other you know um, other ways that um, that the that the work can be realised. Obviously, led entirely by the artist, but. Um, I don't know, I've always found if I haven't, you know, sort of gone all the way and been fully involved and been physically present whilst things are being made, regular studio visits and, and you know, and then keeping in touch over all these years, like, um, you know, Erin and I've, you know, always kept in touch and she's always kept me connected with her practice and, um, and, and that's, you know, that no, not having that, that level of involvement I find is not as, as rewarding and also you don't you know you don't you don't know the work inside out and so I think I've written about Erin's work quite a lot for Primavera for other catalogues and and um and of, and of course you know then there's the the times where I uh, I knew for years about Dark Water and you know the levels that they that Anna and Erin had gone to to make it and um and that it was something that I also wanted further afield and outside of WA and within a within an art, you know, a curated exhibition context to, you know, to, to really, you know, um, show it um, in all its glory, but also within also showing related works around that to, to, to give a sense of, of the context. So I don't know if that's ex exactly answering the, the work, uh, answer, answering your, your, your question. Um, yeah, it, it, it feels like, um, yeah, a, a, partic a particular way, way of working, which is also about endurance and being with artists for the long game. And sometimes, you know, there's there's artists that it's taken me ten years to be able to show in a, in an exhibition or to curate a major show. But you're you know you're you're tracking everything and you're you're keeping in touch. And there's um you know there's also a real sense of of, of friendship and understanding. And that if you you don't know the the artist's position and what is important to them, you can't fully 
um, help realise those really, really complex things and and uh, and sort of have the guts to 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 keep everyone else at bay while those those works are manifested or, or realised. You know, um, but also it's it's really fun. Obviously, you know, Erin. I'm attracted to Erin's practice because it is quite dangerous um, and there is a lot of risk and, you know, um, making certain works like that, you know, that they, you know, they take, they, they, they take something else as sort of another level of, um, of commitment on, on, on all fronts to, to realise. Yeah. Thank you. I think that leads us into our last question from Cynthia Schwartzik for Erin. It's so great to see the scope of your work. I'm curious about the fascination with horror. Is it about fear? Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question. And, um, you know, part of me, sometimes I think I'm still trying to understand my relationship with that. I, you know, I, I I grew up, like I said, around um, a dad that was a scuba diver. So, and, and we'd go, we'd get taken out of school early and we'd go on these long trips so he could he could dive. And so, we, you know, there were times when, like, he'd get, like, a big marlin hook in his finger or we'd have to help pull it out or we'd see things. So, I kind of grew up around seeing a lot of fishing and shell diving and accidents that happen. Um, and I've never been squeamish. I've always had that real fascination in looking closely at things and trying to understand how they work and, and wanting to, to be the one that's ready. If something happens, like I'm ready, I can help with this situation. So that it's partly my own sort of proclivities and urges, but also, I mean, I find as a, as a woman that, you know, we actually, we are living with fear in a way that men aren't. Um, and we understand our bodies in a, in a particular way. Often they refer to horror and like the fear of the abject as being this unfamiliarity with the inside of the body. And it's like, well, that's a very male perspective. I think actually as women, you know, we bleed and we give birth and we, we actually have this different relationship to the abject and we have a different relationship to fear. And I think that there's, a, there's actually a strength that comes from that. So it, it's partly from my own sort of um, feminist readings of horror and just my natural inclination. And I find that there's this, there can be this push and pull in horror that you can make something exquisitely beautiful, but also a little terrifying, that there's there's elements of the sublime, there's that, there's that potential in there. Um, there's that kind of fascination and that desire to sort of not look away, but being on the edge of having to, um, that for me is this trigger, I think, for also exploring some really interesting stories. So. Um, in all of the films that I've done, it, it hasn't just been about creating horror as an effect. It's been a way of pulling people into other ideas and stories. It's sort of a, it's a, it's a hook. Um, and it's, yeah, I, I, the more I read about horror and women, the, the more interesting I find that actually there's some great books out there at the moment. There's one called Women Make Horror by Alison Pierce, and it's all about this sort of unwritten story of women horror filmmakers. Um, and, you know, there's Barbara Creed's classic, The Monstrous Feminine. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a lot untapped still in that relationship between horror and women and the screen. Thank you so much. I think we might close um, questions there. This has been an incredibly informative and inspiring talk. Thank you both so much. little round of applause <laughs> from the audience. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's been really great to also give you, Erin, the opportunity to talk to South Australian artists and to um, have a bit of Q&A at the end. I think that's a really uh, nice exchange that otherwise we might not have been able to do. So thank you so much for your generosity and time, both of you.
Thank you for listening to the Revision podcast series recorded on Ghana Country. This series is brought to you by Guildhouse, our supporting partners and session speakers. Please head to our website guildhouse.org.au for more information on the series and our artistic collaborations with and professional development opportunities for Australian artists. Revision was developed with support from Australia Council for the Arts, the Day Family Foundation and Creative Partnerships Australia and has continued through the generous philanthropic support of the Guildhouse Creative Visionaries.